You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In 1979, after some modest success, a Japanese video game company opened an office in America. They started off in New York, but eventually moved to Seattle. They wanted to break into the new North American market, but the game sales were lackluster. The head of the American division tried to keep them afloat and asked for more talent to be sent over from Japan. Most people at the top were involved in other projects. But they were able to find a young artist who was willing to develop a new game. His name was Shigeru Miyamoto. He would go on to create the flagship game that became the symbol of not only the company, but really home gaming. In the early days, the character was a carpenter named Jumpman. Then, one day, the landlord for the American offices came in to yell about how the rent was late. The staff thought he looked like their character, and they started referring to Jumpman by a new name. They called him Mario. I feel like who art Ed? Who art Ed? Mr. Wood art Ed me. Either way, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and joining me today, I have Matthew Bliss, host of the Dead Drop podcast, a video game news podcast, and I thought the perfect guest to talk to me about Mario, one of the greatest video game characters of all time. So thank you for joining me. It's great to be here again. Thanks, Kyle. I appreciate that you make time in your schedule to come out on here, and I thought you would be the perfect person because, as I said, we're talking about video games, which not a lot of people even think of when they think of the visual arts, but game design is incorporating so many different artists, and when it's done well, it is it is a thing of beauty. Um, and so today we're talking about one of the pioneers of like the home gaming systems. Uh, I'm going to see if I can hopefully pronounce his name correctly. Shigeru Miyamoto. Mm. Now, it's not a name that rolls off my tongue, but I am very familiar with his work, and I'm guessing all of my listeners are as well. Miyamoto is the person who brought us two of Nintendo's biggest game series, both Mario and The Legend of Zelda. Are you familiar with those? I am, yeah. They're um, classics. <laughs> they're, they're classics. Like, I was never really a big gamer. 
Um, but I grew up with the Nintendo in my house, the original, like the NES and Mario and Zelda were obviously my favorites. I also liked Kid Icarus, which I found out Miyamoto developed that one also, um, as I was doing research, like the, the guy was doing a lot of good stuff. So today I want to focus a little bit about his development and why his games were so iconic. So Shigeru Miyamoto was born November 16th, 1952 in Sonobe, Japan. Sonobe? Sonobe? Yeah, I think just just have a crack at it. Go with your instincts. I think, yeah. Okay. I think you're all good. <laughs> yeah. Um, his father was an English teacher interestingly enough. So he's grown up in Japan. Father's a teacher. Um, greatest profession known to man, obviously. Indeed. So he was, I'm sure, raised well. He talks about his childhood. Like, obviously, son of a teacher. He, he was not like, they were not living high off the hog. He talked about how he was just basically out exploring nature a lot as a kid, you know, mm. didn't have a ton of stuff, but had the ultimate tool, the child's imagination and curiosity for exploration. They were, I guess, out a little bit in sort of a more rural area in Japan. So he talks about how he would go out and explore like the rice paddies and he, you know, found a cave and sort of summoned the courage to go in and explore a little bit. It's the kind of thing that just seems so beautiful and perfect. And it's going to come up later on because one of the things he has talked about in an interview that was um, very much influential in how he developed his games, particularly Zelda, was he talked about an experience climbing up the mountain, a uh, mountainside near his home. When he's near the top, he comes across a lake. And it was just this totally unexpected thing. Like, you're climbing a mountain, you don't expect to come across a lake. At least I don't, you know? Mm. And he said it was one of those moments where he's just kind of awestruck by the nature. He said that's one of the things that he wants to elicit in his games. He wants people to have that sense of discovery. And, like, when you think about Zelda... It's really a non-linear game. I mean, you're discovering this map. You start off with not even the map in front of you. The map is created as you're exploring the game. Yeah. And really, later iterations of Mario are the same way. I mean, Mario Odyssey is kind of that same way where you're discovering new worlds within the game. Yeah. But I think Zelda A Link to the Past is one of those games that's touted as having no guidance to it at all. Like there are secrets hidden everywhere. And if you explore far enough, like even just hitting a wall that doesn't look like it should be hit, apparently you can find secrets everywhere in that game. Yeah. And I think, I think that's what makes it so engaging is that mm. process of discovery. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you're a teacher as well. So, you know, just as well as I do that, we learn more and we learn better when we're forced to work for it and discover it and, cons- you know, when it's not spoon fed to us. Yeah. Um, the, the great thing is being able to see where you go as well. Like um, when you mentioned that enjoying the splendor of nature 
as he climbed the mountain mm-hmm. and saw the lake. It made me think of the most recent release of Zelda as well, uh, Breath of the Wild, which admittedly is about five years old at this point. But that's a game that was built on the premise that you can look across the environment, see something you want to go to, and then you can go there. In, in yeah. a lot of games, that's not a concept that's familiar because you'll have a backdrop, like an art-based backdrop that might be a city, but you can't go there. But that sense of exploration and discovery is clear in the most recent Zelda game as well. So clearly his legacy has proliferated through the series that way. Yeah. And, you know, as you talked about backdrops being a podcaster yourself, you are spoon feeding me a few nice little segues to get back to the backdrop and our main focus here. A little bit of uh, Miyamoto's background. He studied art at Kanazawa Municipal College of Industrial Arts. Like, I guess he started off wanting to create manga. And then he became an industrial designer. He's kind of designing toys and things like that. In 1977, I didn't even realize Nintendo went back to the 1970s. But he joined Nintendo in 1977. I guess it was sort of his toy designs and developments that like impressed them. And he started off making art for an arcade game. It was called Sheriff, kind of standard arcade game. But then in 1981, he developed a little-known game called Donkey Kong. One of the things I find really interesting about Donkey Kong is, on its face, it seems like such a simple game, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's just, you're, you're jumping over the barrels, trying to climb up. Yep. But he prioritized things beyond just, like, the standard arcade games of like let's score all the points he starts mm-hmm. to he starts to come up with a little bit of a story in there and i mean admittedly it's a thin story yeah. <laughs> you know donkey kong is you know the 1981 game it's almost like a love triangle between a carpenter a, a an ape and and the princess right yeah but and you will notice I said Carpenter. Mario was not a plumber to begin with. Yeah. Um, he, yeah, he started off as just like a, comp- a carpenter. He's trying to build a building. He's trying to build that tower. And the ape is getting in his way, throwing these barrels. He's got to get over those obstacles. And like I said, it's a simple story. It's a thin narrative. But there's a story to it. And one of the things that made his games stand out was Miyamoto's developing these things that are a little bit surreal. It's a little bit, it's a silly story, but it's something you can wrap your brain around. And he's bringing in like the soundtrack. Um, that's another thing. Like you think about a lot of those old games, Pong, it has sound effects as you're hitting something, but Miyamoto is putting in like a soundtrack to the game, which helps to just get you on that gut level. Mm. And I guess it in the early days, he was even doing some of the sound. Um, yeah. I was reading an interview where he was saying one of the cool things about his career at Nintendo is he's been able to do all of these things that are bringing in his childhood 
joys and passions for exploration and he enjoyed music and the guitar and like he's bringing together the art and the design and the exploration and the narrative and all of that in the development of these games i guess also and i i think this is really cool he's not one for like doing a ton of like the market research and focus groups he's just like well i think it's fun and so probably other people will too he uses his family and friends to test it and just thinks about what does he enjoy in a game. Yeah, that's Nintendo as a company, though. I think a lot of um, a lot of people who stick close to the industry these days will agree Nintendo is very much a company that does its own thing without caring much about yeah. the rest of the industry, which is a, a really good thing to see sometimes. Sometimes it can be a bit frustrating when you're a fan waiting for that game to come out. But, um, yeah. It takes guts. You got to like it or not. It takes some guts to be yeah. sticking with your your own um, instincts about what you like about a game and all of that. Mm. Um, so when when you talk about all that um, that stuff that Miyamoto undertook very early on, the only thing I can yeah. think of is frustration for him because there was a very a very small window of stuff that you could actually do back then when you were coding these games to include them because the storage space that you could use to store the game was so infinitesimally small compared to what we have access to today that even sometimes music was a luxury. Like Pong yeah. may not have had music because there wasn't any room on the on the mm-hmm. board to store it. So they could do the doop and the doop. And that's about it. But it speaks to his creativity that he managed to to fit that stuff in. It's one of those things where it's like there's that paradox of restrictions forcing you to be more creative in your developments. Like um, a lot and a lot of Mario came about because of the restrictions, because in those early days, you're talking about designing a character on a grid of pixels that are like 16 by 16. Mm. You know, it's like it is tiny. You know, I mean, when you think about how many millions of pixels we see on a screen these days, but that's part of why he's wearing the outfit that he is. Those overalls obviously go along with the theme of a carpenter, but also they just needed something that's got like the big, bold colors that are going to be visible on that tiny pixelated screen. That's why he's got a big nose and mustache, because they needed features that would be visible even when super pixelated. Mm. And I guess the hat came about, again, out of just necessity, because he was like, I can't make hair that works. The hair just doesn't look good, so let's just throw a hat on there and call it a day. Um, Yep. And... It works, you know, it worked in that super low resolution and I think they did a good job as they've updated it. Obviously, the the graphics became more sophisticated, but they kept some of those elements. Um, I guess the way that the way that he became a plumber, because the first game he's a carpenter, as they're developing the Mario Brothers game, they just thought well, we've got this level that's got a bunch of pipes in there. Who's going to be going through the pipes? A plumber. Let's make let's make the Mario Brothers a plumber. Or plumbers, I guess, to stay grammatically correct. Yeah. The other brother being Luigi, of course. Luigi, of course, his fraternal <laughs> twin, which I didn't realize they were twins until 
until I was doing the research. But um, oh, there's tons of lore in there that maybe we don't want to explore. There's hundreds of games maybe <laughs> that build up that story. I know, but but it it's so cool that they take the time to develop that story. And and I guess I mean a lot of it's developed on the fly. You know, mm. uh, and a lot of it is probably like retroactively put in as for continuity purposes. Yeah. But I do like that they do take time to think about it. Even something as silly as like the mushrooms. I guess he was thinking about like, well, because Mario starts off small and then he gets the mushroom and he becomes supersized, right? Yep. Um, one of the early influences I read somewhere was they initially thought about like Popeye who eats spinach and becomes super strong. But they realized, like, we can't get the rights to that. But as they were looking to develop the Super Mario Brothers game, and they're like, we need something to catalyze supersizing him. They started to think about, like, folklore and Alice in Wonderland, and they're just like, well, mushrooms always seem to go along with these sort of trippy, surreal experiences. So let's have him eat a mushroom, and then he becomes supersized in Super Mario. Mm. Which... It's got its own logic, you know? I mean, it's kind of surreal. It's a, it's a little bit strange. But there's something to that. I think that's why it works. Yeah. Probably also worked because it's a rounded shape that's easy to put into the pixelated graphics. But Yeah, that's it. I thought that was cool. Yeah, it is. It's, um, the, it's, it's one of those things that we look back on through the history of games and just take as a given. Like people would probably wouldn't even question it these days because it is so iconic that it being in that game. But looking back on the inspiration of the design, it's, it's always interesting to hear where that came from. Yeah. And I always love these little bits that Miyamoto shares about his own personal history and his inspiration. I mean, he has said in interviews that he grew up in a house without a TV, but he loved comic books and specifically Italian comic books. And that's how we ended up with a Japanese artist developing the iconic um, Italian plumber for the American video game audience. He's also talked about how he used to walk by like a dog that would that would bark at him. And and that was sort of the inspiration for Chain Chomp is that that sort of like chained up barking dog. But he puts this little surreal twist on it where it becomes relatable in the feeling and experience. But it's transformed in a way that makes it a little bit more fun to explore and less threatening. Now what I want to do is shift the conversation, and for the second segment after the break, we're going to discuss Mario Odyssey. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations, and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds 
like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. Are you familiar with Mario Odyssey? I am. That was the most recent Mario release for Nintendo Switch, wasn't it? Yeah. And I got to say, that was one of my personal favorites. Um, I wasn't much of a gamer. I played original NES and then I stopped for like 30 years. And with my son, we got a Switch and he absolutely loved the Odyssey game. And the two of us spend hours together playing it. Like that's kind of that's how I got back into gaming in the 21st century. That's um, a great way to do it. And I gotta say, it's a fantastic game. But I'm I've given away a little bit of my my biases and my priors. What do you think of the game? How it's developed? What the gameplay's like? Characters, the graphics, all of that sort of stuff. What do you think of that one? That the feel and look of the game is. It's a testament to how the game has grown over time, I think. And the way that they tweak it to feel just right is really cool. I think uh, remembering from when the game was released initially, one of the weird questions wasn't uh, from from fans who were playing it. They, they weren't too concerned with how it was playing and the feel of it or the look of Mario. It's It's incredibly iconic and nice and 3D and shaded and all that stuff. One of, the, one of the weirdest questions that came out was the size of Mario in comparison to one of the worlds that you get to explore with the anthropomorphized hat. Mm-hmm. Admittedly, I don't know yeah. too much about that. Cappy, yeah. Cappy, yeah. But um, yeah, you get to go to a real world with people in it. But mm-hmm. Mario is very small compared to those people. Yeah, he's small compared to the, he's small compared to the people, but then, you know within the game or maybe i'm thinking of one of the other maybe the mario worlds there's one one space where like there's like a super sized like giant mario but i think for the most part within odyssey he is um smaller scale yeah but that that kind of clashed our worlds together where people were thinking there's a universe where mario exists in a world like ours that's really weird and unusual and kind of cool so people were exploring and talking about that for the most part, I think. But um, it, it does look like a great game that handles really well. And graphically, it just looks excellent. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I liked about it is they maintain a little bit of that simplicity of the Mario character. Like he still feels cartoonish in a lot of ways. And mm. they've even got those those little Easter eggs where you can you can change his outfits and you can get the sort of like original eight bit kind of outfits and stuff like that to make him look like the retro version. Um, that was one of those things my son loved dressing him up in all the different outfits as we went to the different worlds and getting some of those old school things. Um, as 
I don't know what you call those gear packs or, you know, those kinds of accessories you have in the game, in all sorts of gaming worlds. Um, it's, it's almost like a skin or something like that, which is one of those nods to like contemporary gaming culture, Mm -hmm. I think, but at the same time in a way that's very true to its roots. Yeah. And let's be fair, that doesn't require you to purchase anything on top of the original game, which I think can sometimes be a problem these days. Yeah. I got to say as a, like as the person who's paying for my son's games, I get really irritated with some of those in-app things. That it's like, what is the point of this? It's just to dress it up. I like yeah. that you're using the coins that you found. You earn it within the game itself. You know, you're getting these power-ups and enhancements or whatever through your gameplay, through your skill, through your exploration. And again, coming back to that topic of the exploration, it's a game that was developed with a lot of puzzles and a lot of things for you to find and discover. I mean, throughout the game, you're trying to discover all these different moons that you need to repair the Odyssey. And I don't know how a moon is going to fix a, you know, hot air balloon hat, but I don't even question it in the world. I know there is its own internal logic and it's totally cool. It you know, it's the suspension of disbelief. Mm. But it's just it's fun that they go to that sort of totally bonkers place with it of like you need moons and stars and all of this stuff to power the city and to get the musicians to play the Mario festival and whatever it's going to be. It's fun. It's genuinely fun, even for an old person who's not much of a gamer. I like that there's stuff I can discover, and I like that the learning curve is not too steep. Mm. You know? Yeah. I think it it's an inviting game, unlike a lot of other ones where it's like, I I feel stressed playing some other, other games because I'm just overwhelmed by all the stuff. And there's a ton of stuff within the game, but I... I feel like it's manageable. I feel like I can explore at my own pace. Yeah, which is uncommon these days because there's so much pressure from all sides when you when you buy a game to follow the community who finishes it in like two days and you feel like you have to follow along with them. Or there's speedrunning communities as well that you might be a part of when you play games. And admittedly, I'm sure there's a Mario Odyssey speedrun somewhere. About who could complete? Oh, there is the. <laughs> yeah, people have completed it in what I consider to be just ludicrous times. But yeah, and that I, that lends it to the design as well. For the most part, like the programming, people will break the geometry of the game to try and discover its secrets. In fact, Super Mario Brothers, I think the original one, is one of the most speedrun, sp- speedrun, speedrunned. Yeah, speedrun, speed ran. Yeah. English teachers. It's one that's most popular <laughs> for the speed runs. Yeah, perfect. I love it. <laughs> um, and what they do with that, because of the structure of the console, was that they put in a number of really weird commands in the controller that mean nothing in the game, but it rewrites the the internal code of the game so that you can do different things and accelerate to different areas of the of the game with it. Um, admittedly, you can't do that these days with Mario Odyssey and stuff, but there's always little things you can exploit. 
Um, but that pressure that you feel to, to play games in an experience that other people dictate. Mario Odyssey is one of those few games that remain that just kind of sits there waiting for you to come back when you're ready and to do things at your own pace. Yeah, and and I like that. It, I mean, and again, that's coming from it at the at the lens of a father who's sitting playing games with his son and wants something that's a relaxing family experience, which is lovely. And also, a, and also, an old person who can't keep up with technology and what the kids are into. But I see a little bit of nostalgia that kind of works for today's generation too. And so I feel a little bit less out of touch and I appreciate that for, yeah. And as lo- I appreciate that they give me that as long as it doesn't destroy your thumbs as well. As, as I get increasingly <laughs> older, I realize my brashness with brushing off the idea of carpal tunnel and all of the finger based problems that you get as you increase in age. Funnily enough, it makes video games a little bit harder to play as well. So whatever puts a relaxing touch on, on your digits can be handy as well. Yeah. And I'm wrapping it up. I want just a three-point rating scale. And where should this hang? The loo? Is this something to look at? The lab? The lab. Is this something to learn from? Or the loo? British for the bathroom. Yeah, there's the a loo joke in there somewhere. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. I think this one's for the Louvre. I think not only is it something that's contributed highly to the game industry, being one of the most sold game franchises in the world it has inspired a lot of gamers at the same time as well as developers and artists and people familiar with the law just everything about it is to be admired so i would say chuck it in the louvre yeah i i would agree um i think you know mario that franchise and everything like that it it is one for for the museums. It's one for the ages, and I I think I'm not alone in that. I seem to recall a few years back going to the Museum of Contemporary Art and seeing a video game display, and I'm pretty sure Mario was one of the ones that was in there because people are starting to realize there's a lot of creative storytelling, graphic design work, all of that coming together in in this new medium of video games. And I think Mario is, it's one for the ages. It's one that sort of set the rules of what video gaming is. I mean, it, he, he, Miyamoto essentially created the platformer game, you know? Um, And I think there's a wax statue in Hollywood as well, which is the only gaming related wax based piece, I guess that's sitting in a Hollywood museum. Yeah. And yeah, which is another sort of tribute to just how iconic he is. I I guess people Mm. have, have suggested that he should go into film because his work seems so cinematic. And, um, he, he refutes that saying he's not really much of a storyteller. He's more about the gameplay and the enjoyment of the experience of the discovery and all of that. Um, but I think a lot of people do see it in that way. It is the storytelling. It is, mm. it's the new cinema of interactive stuff. Well, it's funny you should say that. The Mario movie is set to release. Was terrible. Oh, yeah. We're not talking about that one. The one with um, Bob Hoskins <laughs> back in the 90s. Yeah. 
uh, yeah, that was look, it was it was all right for the time, but a brand new ones should be coming out. Um, I think they said summer of twenty twenty three. So if you happen to be going through the back catalogue and it's twenty twenty three right now, then um, <clears throat> lucky you, you might be able to see it in a few months. But uh, yeah, that's going to have Mario in it, voiced by Chris Pratt. So, oh, interesting. I'll have to have to keep my eyes out for that when it comes out. I guess in a year or so. Yeah, and like you said, you know, Miyamoto was all all about the gameplay and the design. Maybe there's going to be some really interesting story stuff that comes out of that film because it's developed by someone else. Yeah, hopefully it'll be better than the last iteration because the 90s one was rough. (laughs) For any of the kids listening, go and have a look, maybe. Perhaps ask your parents first because it's a little bit rough around the edges. Yeah. But I'm just going to say don't spare yourself. (laughs) It is. (laughs) It's a rough one. Um, But. One thing that is not rough is you and your podcast. You are a delightful person, always willing to kindly give up your time to help me out on my podcasts. In- Thank you. Inform me about things I'm ignorant of. And I appreciate that you are regularly bringing the news about video games on your podcast, The Dead Drop. Yes. And if you want to catch that, um, deaddroppod.com is the website that I've got. It'll be in all the podcast platforms if you're you're hunting for it now. And um, I cover all of the broad scope of gaming news. Uh, I try to look at the development side more often than not because um, it's a very interesting and emerging space at the moment. There's a, there's a weird uh, transition in the industry happening at the moment. Um, talk for, regarding what we're talking about here, Nintendo Switch Online is a very interesting experience that's both got some criticism and is emerging into something that's that's great as part of it in terms of a game subscription. But um, yeah, head on over if you want to hear some game news. Uh, there's always an episode twice a week uh, on a Monday and Thursday for Australians uh, wherever you're hailing from. Just, you know, <laughs> figure out the time zones or flip them or listen to it upside down or something. That'll get you in the right headspace. I- I will never figure out the time zone. I am so happy I actually made it here today mm-hmm. because I know it's tomorrow where you are. Um, yes. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you very much. And I will, of course, uh, put a link in the show notes so listeners can find you for some more thoughtful uh, news on video games and those developments on uh, Nintendo Switch and other things. Awesome. Thanks for that, Kyle. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted, part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you found this tolerable, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week on social media at Who Arted Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And of course, on the website, whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.